Hey friends, I'm Ashley. Hey you guys! I'm Lainey. And this is Haunted Real Estate. All right, you guys, welcome back to Lizzie Borden part two. How's everyone doing? Pretty fly for a white guy. (laughs) Oh my gosh. You had to go there. I mean, girl. Any news for haunted real estate? Um, Just a quick apology on our um, delayed uh, posting. Um, Everyone went out for spring break and came back with colds and flus. So um, me especially, I'm the one who posts them. So that's on me. Sorry, guys. I'm all better now. Yes. My sticky, sticky shoes. My sticky shoes. Why you stick stick on me? Okay, so now that we've done all that, um, (laughs) that's the news, you guys. Let's get to part two of Lizzie Borden. So we're going to recap. It was August 4th, 1892 at the Borden House on 92 2nd Street in Fall River, Massachusetts. Andrew Borden was found dead, having been axed 11 times on the couch in the sitting room downstairs. Abby Borden, the stepmother, was found dead upstairs, having been axed 18 or 19 times in the guest room where Lizzie and Emma's uncle, John Morse, had slept the night before. We know Lizzie had a strained relationship with her stepmother, Abby. She referred to her as Mrs. Borden and was very quick to correct people when they addressed Abby as the mother to the Borden sisters. By all accounts, Abby was nice and liked by the ones that knew her. Emma, Lizzie's older sister, was considered motherly to Lizzie. She was away when this had happened in New Bedford. Lots of questions I feel like I have to ask was, are are really about the relationship with Abby and Andrew. Just trying to understand Emma and Lizzie's relationship with them. Because there was definitely things going on behind closed doors that we're just never going to know about. Unless we find some random diary or something that tells us a story. But I just wonder, was it toxic? Was it abusive? We really don't know. And I'm not trying to insinuate that there was. But Lizzie also wasn't known to be a violent person. She was definitely an odd person, but doesn't necessarily make you a murderer yeah when you see such a violent crime like this you have to wonder what what went went on behind closed doors within the family what type of relationships they had yeah so i just i'm interested in that i think we're just never really going to know because lizzie and emma were pretty quiet people i mean they didn't make spectacles of themselves they they weren't really outgoing and i mean these were spinster ladies basically i don't i don't like using that word but spinster ladies it's not it's not what i don't want to identify women as that and like try and put them in some kind of box i'm really not trying to do that but they were considered that at the time and we know lizzie did act strange after the murders there wasn't anything though about her personality that said she was violent so her behavior after the murders um she just didn't react the way that people expected her to react. Uh, remember, this is the Victorian age, so there's very specific ways that women are supposed to act and dress, proper behavior for women, and Lizzie and sometimes Emma just didn't have that. Again, doesn't make you a murderer. Some people are just unconventional. I, I just, and, and Lizzie's dad, um, Andrew Borden, was kind of his own person as well. He didn't show off his money, he wanted to live a simple life. So, you know, I I don't want to box people in and say she should have done this and she should have done that. She's allowed to have her own personality. But this is going to be brought up several times because it's it's brought up by the investigators. It's brought up in the trial that she just didn't have much of a reaction to the entire thing. So she came across the dead bodies and it was dead bodies in a brutal slaying of your own father. And she just she just didn't have the reaction that people thought she should have be be heavy in tears and fainting and just she wasn't doing all that but fainting yeah <laughs> women should have been fainting all the time she actually did faint a couple of times um so that that's appropriate for the time yeah now if people faint i feel like you're like really you're so dramatic why are you fainting i go to the hospital <laughs> if you tell me you can control fainting tell me how to do that because i've fainted a couple times in my life and it's a horrible feeling it is a horrible feeling i freaking hate it um and they've they've always been 
the, the most random times. I fainted that one time at the Verizon store mm-hmm. and I felt it coming too. Like I was sitting there, I was like yeah. starting to get the cold sweats. I was starting to get that dizziness that I was like, oh my God, my clock is running out. I'm about to faint. Yeah. And I remember talking to the guy and I was like, oh, I gotta go. And I started like, hightailing it out of the Verizon store and then I fainted into the door. <laughs> yes. And then it's not funny, but it's funny. It, it, I know it's, it's funny because it's me, so it's yeah. okay. We can laugh at it. But I remember one, like I went down and I was still somewhere in my head. Like I could hear people around me, of course, and then people crowd around me. Lainey was there. She was freaking out. And I could hear her, Ashley, Ashley, Ashley. And even in my head, I'm like, it's like I'm swimming up to the surface yeah. of the pool where I can hear. It's like um, a dream I'm, state almost. Yeah. And I'm kind of like in my head, I'm like, I'm coming. I'm getting there. Just like, give me a second to come to Lainey. <laughs> it's like, I want to tell her like, chill out. I'm not dead. Just give me a minute to get out of this. But of course, you can't say that. And then I fainted in choir in front of the people in oh. front of me on the stand in middle school. And I fainted at a Walmart in Colorado twice. Um, twice at Walmart? Yes. And what was weird <laughs> is not one single staff member came to my aid or did anything. I couldn't get out of there without, like, I felt myself about to faint again. Like, I felt it all happening very quickly. I was like, oh, my God, I can't really breathe. Oh, my God, I'm so dizzy. Boom, went down. And then, of course, my friend Michelle was there. Michelle was freaking out. Same thing. She probably thought I just, like, keeled over. I didn't. Woke up, and I'm like, sorry, that was weird. And so we started walking, and she's like, are you good? Do I take you back to the car and finish shopping? And I was like, yeah, no, I think I'm good. And we walked down a couple aisles and that one just hit me like a ton of bricks. I just went down and I went down on the metal shelf and ended up with this big gash behind my thigh, which I didn't know was there until I got into the truck and sat down on the hot leather. And I was like, oh, that stings something weird. And I look behind my leg and I'm like, oh, I'm actively bleeding. Okay. Didn't know. (laughs) I've been stabbed. (laughs) And this poor woman, this other shopper saw me go down and she was trying to to help me. And she's like, let's get you one of those electrical scooters. And I was like, honestly, I can't trust that I'm not going to faint again. So I'm not (laughs) going to drive a motorized vehicle just so I can like fly through glass or something or take out a crowd (laughs) of people. So gosh. anyway, so at that point, Michelle was like, yeah, you're going back to the car. Not one employee. I, I we didn't even see an employee. I like I don't even think anybody was working at Walmart that day. Someone unlocked the doors and it was self checkout. Gosh, it was super weird. I, I hate to say it, but you know, nobody seems to like their job at Walmart, so they were probably not paying attention. I mean, I didn't even see them though. That's what that's what was a weird thing. Are there employees here? I have no idea. I hadn't seen one. No blue vest. Could have been your chance to get you know. Nice grill or something. I I know. I'm not stealing. I know. I'm just kidding. So anyway, fainting is terrible. So stealing. And so is stealing. Um, Now, Lizzie was kind of a klepto. I I will say that. Since we're talking (laughs) about stealing, she had stolen from a store before. We're fairly certain she stole from her own home at one point because Andrew Borden um, put special locks inside the home. when about that. When only Andrew and Abby's room was robbed. And then she actually steals later um, after the trial and everything. Um, so she never really gives up that part of her life. We know she was busted three times at least. Um, so how many times she get away with it? Who knows? Yeah. So anyway, back to Lizzie. She could have been in shock. What I also think doesn't get mentioned very often is who's to say she didn't have some sort of social disorder that yeah, really just identify in- it then. Exactly. That just like in. I don't know if the word impaired is the right word, but just impaired her from being able to have a reaction. If she's not a highly emotional person, which she's not, um, she's not openly emotional. You only see her emotional in the trial, but not even probably as much as a, a regular woman would be. Yeah. So anyway, I think there could be something to that that just couldn't have been diagnosed at the time, wasn't understood. There are plenty of reasons that could explain her lack of reaction, but the Police were very split in their views because they did not like how Lizzie was acting. She came off as just suspicious to them pretty quickly. But at the same time, this is the Victorian age. Women did not hatchet anyone to death. If women were murderers, they poisoned. And in the eyes of the people of the time, that is the only way a woman 
could murder somebody is through poisoning. She could not physically murder anybody. She wouldn't be strong enough. If this would have been a stabbing, <laughs> I can't even. Had this been a stabbing, they would have said like, no, she wouldn't be strong enough to get the knife through, you know, the the rib cage or something like that. I mean, they would have had a reason to say she could not have done it. So, and again, I'm, these are not my words. This is just the sentiment of the time. She, she or any other woman would not have been physically capable of wielding an axe and taking not one but two lives yeah and most of it was in the skull so that's also got to have some strength behind that ass yeah and how high do you have to wield it too i mean dainty woman couldn't couldn't possibly do that yes she yeah exactly it's like i almost said hulk's hammer thor's hammer (laughs) thor's hammer she just wouldn't have even been able to pick up the the axe or the hatchet and i think that also was one of the biggest mistakes of the trial is underestimating women yeah i'm not saying she is or isn't a murderer i do think there's a lot of weird things about lizzie but i do think this idea alone to the minds of men which is the entire jury and the lawyers and the judge all men yeah are not gonna believe a woman could do this and that i think just kind of taints taints the minds and it's gonna taint the verdict uh watch jack the ripper actually be jill the ripper oh my god wouldn't that be diabolical they just (laughs) never looked at women so and it's been a woman the whole time that'd be crazy i'm not saying women can do everything that men do but don't underestimate women so lizzie here had the most motive and that's also what the prosecution is going to use against her is that her and emma but emma wasn't there at the time had the most motive nobody else really would have had anything to gain out of killing abby abby and andrew it's not like one of them was killed they were both killed so that eliminated you know andrew if if just abby died and andrew lived there would be no money if andrew died and abby lived the money would probably go to Abby. Yeah. I don't know how that would have been split with the girls, if if it would have been at all. They both died. So it really puts Emma and Lizzie with the biggest motive here. So in 1892, forensic methods that are common today were only in their infancy at the time. And they were at their infancy in mostly the UK area and India. And I only say India because... The UK was kind of hanging out over there. So really, let's just say the the general UK and some of the land that they occupied. Um, So the ability to use DNA from hair, clothing fibers, fingernail scrapings was pretty much unheard of. We'll see that shortly here and when we get to it, they're able to look at hair and distinguish between animal and human hair. But had there been like a brown human hair on it, they could say it could be Lizzie's hair. It could be Emma's hair. It I don't know what color Abby's hair was. It could have been Bridget's hair. Could have been one of you know, anybody's hair. But who's they, Bridget? Bridget was the um, housekeeper. Oh, sorry, um, Bridget. The, the Irish immigrant. So they can only identify between human and animal hair, but that's it. They would not be able to identify whose hair it would have been other than just like looking at the hair color. Yeah. Um, fingerprinting was also in its early stages and was not widespread and wasn't even allowed as evidence in the courtroom until 1911 and we're in 1892. So no one's looking at fingerprinting. So unfortunately with that, investigators, I guess, didn't believe that DNA evidence was going to amount to anything because they didn't save the fabric, the fibers, gather fingerprints or anything that could be useful today. And they didn't try to protect the crime scene from trampling and destroying evidence. You know, the house ended up getting cleaned up. So (laughs) nothing really is going to be saved outside of just taking the bodies out of the house. I never understand that. Even like way back in the day, why why mess with the crime scene? I yeah, hate what I, I hate what I hear that. Like, I know oh, it's been cleaned or people been walking through it. Yeah, this they whole let time. people come in like a museum and take what they want from a crime scene. Like yeah. that's wild. I'm sorry, not only is that a crime scene, that is still other people's things. Yeah. It's still robbery. It's so disrespectful. Like I would be so appalled if I died in my house and then my neighbors came in and just started taking stuff out of my house. I will oh. haunt each individual one of your asses. I'm just gonna say it now because like I'll that is say, so I'm rude. I'm back an angry demon and <laughs> yes, you, 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 Megan, Reagan, and a couple close friends. Like y'all can go through my things with Casey's permission. But other than that, like 
I, I don't need everybody just taking whatever they want out of my house. Be like, oh, this has blood splatter on it. I'm going to take it. I've always wanted something with Ashley's blood on it. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, they didn't see the value in getting any of this evidence and did not imagine its value decades later. Had they had that foresight, I really think that this could be solved and we wouldn't be so obsessed with this infamous case. So by the time Emma Borden arrived on the 340 train from New Bedford, the inside of the home was pretty much already put back together. Emma really missed out on the craziness that went on during the discovery stages of the murders. Dr. Bowen had sent a telegram to Emma, which apparently did not explicitly say that Andrew was dead. She came home assuming that he was sick or took a turn for the worse. We can only imagine how she felt when she arrived home to crowds of people standing in front of her house and the police standing guard at the door. So there weren't many details in Emma's reaction. Again, I'm sure it was unrefined to have a reaction in front of people. So it happened behind closed doors. So the only word that described her reaction was that she was overcome, which honestly is a perfect word to describe Victorian women if they freaked out at the time. Yeah. She was just, she was overcame. (laughs) Well, it's crazy because like anyone who knows me knows I cry for every emotion, but also like I could see just like not having words or speaking for a long time if I saw my yeah. dad slaughtered. Like uh, being in shock is probably, a real thing. <laughs> yes. Very much so. Um and, and you don't know how you're gonna react when you're in shock. So I'm sure being overcome was an understatement to how she really reacted. It doesn't really put much of a picture in my mind because that could be anything from sobbing to fainting to screaming to collapsing on the floor and picking I up don't an know. axe and going after someone else. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Uh, Emma, uh, Emma quickly took charge over the household as she pretty much always did. She kind of took the parental role and she hired an attorney named Andrew Jennings. So now that Lizzie's a suspect, that's how we ended the last episode, the investigators began questioning people around town to get a timeline leading up to the murders on August 4th, 1892. Eli Bentz was questioned. He owned a nearby drugstore. He said that on August 3rd, the day before the murders, Lizzie came into the drugstore and asked for 10 cents worth of pr- prussic acid, which is basically cyanide. This was extremely poisonous. Four drops was enough to be fatal, even in a very diluted state, like 2%. Oh, wow. Four drops would kill you. She said she wanted it to put at the ends of her capes to keep moths and vermin from ruining the fur. Eli Bentz told her that they didn't sell it without the orders of a physician. She told him that she had purchased the the prussic acid several times in the past. He affirmed her, reaffirmed to her that it was only sold with a prescription. She left the store obviously dissatisfied and Eli Bentz felt strange about the whole thing. And of course, this is what he's telling investigators. He also said that nobody had ever come in to ask for prussic acid over the counter before. So the incident itself didn't make Lizzie look great, but also again, circumstantial it doesn't make you a murderer um maybe she really hated vermin and had lost several pieces of fur to moths who knows i don't so yeah I don't. now one thing to note about eli bence's story is that the state police inspector was testing clerks to see whether or not they were selling poisons over the counter illegally without a prescription the two main poisons are arsenic and prussic acid which like i said is cyanide And they were trying to see if pharmacists would sell it. So the inspector sent his wife into several pharmacies, including in Fall River, to see if they would sell it. And it's possible that Eli Bentz had been tested by that, uh, by tested, like they were trying to see if he would sell it to them, the wife of the state inspector, and maybe he confused the wife with Lizzie. So we're not sure if that was Lizzie or not. The other possible suspect was John Morse, the uncle that had a planned visit and arrived the day before the murders on August 3rd. What is odd about his visit is it was a planned visit and he didn't bring anything with him, not even a toothbrush. That's a little weird. Police were definitely looking at him. His previous occupation before his current job as a horse trader was a butcher. Oh. Um, So people crowded the streets, and when he came walking by, they were yelling for him to be lynched. Like, to them, he was the definite murderer. And because of the manner of the murder, could have easily been a suspect. They really thought it was somebody inside the house because of the way the doors were locked. Nobody saw anybody come in or out of the house. But similar to Lizzie... 
there's just no evidence. It's it's all circumstantial. Yes, he could have done it. Um, ultimately, Fester though, it. he had a very specific alibi and a very specific timeline that day that dismissed him as a suspect. Some people thought, you know how you hear um, in a lot of these true crime stories and stuff that the actual murderers or whatever, they, they're almost like too specific in their timeline. And, and I was wearing a brown coat and my shoes were tied yeah. and I walked to the grocery store at 4.03 p.m. Like, no, you don't know that you did all that. That's kind of what they thought about John Morse. He was very specific in his timeline and his alibi. And I think he said he like had a ticket of a bus that he would have been on at the time and that was to prove his innocence. I don't know. All right. But the investigators were hell-bent. It was someone in the house, which then really puts Lizzie and Bridget as the only two other people in the house. So Lizzie and Emma offered a $5,000 reward to anybody that could help them catch the killer. They'd have to be arrested and convicted to receive the $5,000. The funeral was two days after the murders and was held in the Borden house where the murders took place. Fun. The Undertaker, that house has seen a lot. I Uh, mean, I wonder what the funeral attendees thought walking in there. Like, I know it was very common for people to have the caskets in their homes at the time, but like the murder house, like where it happened. Yeah. It's, I don't know. Would you go to that funeral? I guess it depends how well I knew the person. If that's just where they happen to hold it, then I guess. Oh, man. I. But that's just really eerie. Be like, and he died three feet from his coffin. Like, that's just, I don't know. I don't like that. And it's hard to imagine there weren't, like, stains and stuff still on the ground. Yeah. So, I don't know. Awkward. And it was only two days later. So, to me, that's still a crime scene. But whatever. So, the undertaker had to work very hard because of the manner of death and the fact that Lizzie and Emma wanted an open casket. Oh, God. Yeah, so they had to, like, very specifically turn Andrew's head to keep the gashes and everything and, like, clean them up as best as possible for this open casket. Again, Victorian age, this was the only way to have a proper goodbye. I mean, 18 axe wounds to the head, would you have a face left? He was less. He had less axe wounds, which, again, who did Lizzie hate the most? Yeah. Her stepmother, who had the most wax. 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 So now that it's a funeral, people are sitting there watching the sisters, probably both out of concern, but just general nosiness, you know, wanting to see, hey, their parents were just murdered right here in this very space, kind of just looking at them to see how they're acting. Are you holding up, kiddo? Yeah, of course, most people didn't care for how especially Lizzie was acting because she just wasn't acting like the Victorian woman she was supposed to act. There were a lot of comments over Lizzie's choice in clothing. Again, Victorian age, very specific ways that women had to dress after a fun- or during a funeral and after a funeral for especially the in the deaths of husbands and fathers didn't they have a long um mourning process similar to like yes. judaism yes it's a year mourning process oh. you have to wear black wool down to the floor oh that's hot i'm for, hot thinking about i know that. i know so i my side note here is victorian age in texas what did that look like? Because in if this was like this happened in August, but in Massachusetts, August in Texas is easily in the nineties and hundreds. You're not wearing wool. I probably more deaths in the morning period. I know Jeez. exactly. I mean, you would see no joke. There would be heat strokes. You're not wearing wool. I mean, wool here is maybe something you can wear in the winter, but it's definitely something that's going to dust in your closet for a while because there's only select times here that you can wear wool. Well, that's what I was thinking earlier when you were talking about the vermin and the moths. Like, we don't even worry about moths here, really. I know some people do have their furs. Like, like our grandma lived in Chicago and New York, so she had stuff. But, yeah, we don't really have that problem here in Texas. So my mind kind of went to went to like, would I be wearing the appropriate attire? Um, again, South Texas, not Massachusetts. I'd probably just freeze to death in Massachusetts because the older I get, the more cold sensitive I'm getting. I used to love the cold and now I'm like, I don't want to be outside when it's cold at all. I mean, it is really just bone chilling when it's cold here, but I'm always hot. I 
that'd be a naked mourner just getting fruits and vegetables thrown at me. Yeah, literally right now I'm wearing a sweatshirt and sweatpants and socks and Lainey is barefoot t-shirt and shorts, (laughs) which is like pretty true to I'm always cold and she's always hot. And I'd really love a fan on and, you know, lower the AC, but it'll sound like we're in a jet engine. (laughs) Yes. So back to Lizzie and Emma, they were supposed to be wearing wool dresses long to the ground for a year post-death and a veil at least to the funeral. Neither of them wore a veil, so this was completely appalling. How dare you? Uh, Lizzie's behavior uh, was mostly okay. Um, She was crying at her father's casket. Uh, She kissed him. Other than her attire, they both seemed to be in mourning. I mean, I would cry if I murdered someone because, like, you still did that. Wouldn't you feel a little bad? (laughs) Yeah. It it seemed like they were in mourning, though. Um, So immediately following the funeral, the investigation really began. The whole Borden house was under lockdown, Lizzie being the prime suspect. The Monday following the murders, which was August 7th, Emma was at home doing the dishes. Alice, the friend, was still staying with the sisters, and Lizzie came downstairs with a skirt over her arm. She begins tearing it into pieces and throwing it to the fire. Emma asked her what she was doing, more out of curiosity than suspicion. Lizzie responded that there was some green house paint on the skirt so she was just burning it because it was ruined alice walked into this scene and was incredibly disturbed by the whole thing for one that looks really bad that you're burning clothing two days after a murder Uh uh-huh and second they were under police surveillance so she really felt like what a stupid move like whether this is innocent or not like why would you do this when these police officers are all around the house yeah and she literally told alice literally told lizzie i would not be doing that if i were you so they came into the home on august 8th and went through all of her belongings including clothes looking for blood spatter or anything that could indicate she did it They didn't find anything of note in the closet, but they went to the barn next. And the barn was searched the day of. Now they're searching it a second time. They did find a hatchet with a missing handle, which today is considered the murder weapon. So they wrapped it in paper and took it with them as evidence. Now, what's interesting in finding a murder weapon of this time period, it's I know you want the murder weapon. Okay, that completely makes sense. But you also can't use anything on it fingerprints yeah dna so you have the murder weapon but like what are you gonna do with it after that yeah it's more like a. you know that you know they were axed that was evident the murder weapon is found at the house which doesn't it doesn't necessarily incriminate anybody there is a question as to why it was not found the first time around why did you find it the second time around um i imagine a barn with like hay everywhere and animals and Maybe it was brushed under something, but... I Well, I don't think it had a bunch of animals in it. I, I mean, Where are the animals? Well, we knew that they had, a, like, she was raise, raising pigeons. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. I don't know much talks about, like, cows and horses, like, livestock-type animals. Got it. Um, so I wouldn't say that there was a bunch of hay in there. I never read anything about hay. I'll just say that. So, th- to me, I'm kind of like, hmm, is finding the, my, my passing thought, is finding the hatchet even telling them anything other than, okay, yes, there is a hatchet here, and it looks like it's the murder weapon, and that's all we know. Like, you you knew that yeah. by how, in the manner of their death. Yeah. The Bordens hired a private detective that was interviewing Alice, Emma, and Lizzie. Alice was asked specifically if all the clothes that happened on the day of the murder were still in the home. She lied and said yes, but this lie really nagged at her. She saw Lizzie burn the skirt. Alice went to Lizzie and Emma after the interview and told them, hey, I lied to the PI and I don't feel good about it because I saw you burning this and I think that looks really bad on your part, but I didn't want to get you in trouble. Lizzie even asked her not verbatim, why didn't you tell me it looked weird I was burning the skirt? Okay, Lizzie, like, why do we need to tell you you shouldn't be burning your clothes when you're being looked at as a suspect? How how old is she again? 32. Oh, God, okay. Yeah. She. But then that goes back to me thinking... Did you maybe have a social disorder? Like, to you, you were just doing things that made sense to you. This has paint on it. It's ruined. I'm just going to burn it to get rid of it. She's yeah, not she thinking. she could have, like, a little OCD. Like, she doesn't want the 
paint covered skirt in her presence anymore like it gives her some kind of anxiety or something yeah i don't know like maybe she's simply not thinking like a murderer or like a suspect because she really doesn't think she did anything wrong so yeah again i just go with these passing i'm very mixed on feelings with lizzie i don't know if she's the murderer or not i think she is the most likely candidate but there there could be other people i have no idea yeah so at this point the investigators oh sorry let me backtrack. So Alice decided to clear her conscience and let the PI know that, hey, back on what I said, Lizzie was burning a skirt and sorry I lied to you. So the investigators now thought there was enough to arrest Lizzie. Again, it was all circumstantial. Nothing truly pointed to it except they think she probably did it. And literally those were a lot of the words. You probably did it. So we're just going to go ahead and arrest you. Yeah. So she was arrested on August 11th, 1892. After her initial hearing, she ends up getting bailed without jail. So let's talk a little bit about the hearing and the questioning. So Lizzie's story unfortunately changes several times and did not match up with Bridget's story as to what Lizzie was doing. So this, again, does not make Lizzie look good. She even changed some details like food that she ate. She said she took out the ironing board and was waiting for the iron to heat up. This timeline didn't match Bridget's story. Bridget was outside cleaning the windows, so she would have been able to see inside where Lizzie would have been ironing and it didn't match up with what Lizzie said she was doing. Yeah. During the time of Abby's murder, Lizzie said she was ironing. That didn't match up with Bridget. Lizzie was not ironing when she said she was. So at the time of Abby's death, Lizzie was the only other known person in the house. So you really have Lizzie lying or completely mistaken or Bridget lying or completely mistaken. Bridget doesn't have any motive here and nothing to gain by lying or murdering the Bordens. So it continues on. So where were you at the time of Andrew Borden's death? Lizzie could not decide if she was upstairs, downstairs, or on the stairs when Andrew Borden came home. She said she saw him come home, and her stories literally went those three different ways. At one point, she was upstairs. At another point, she said she was downstairs when he got home, and she was in the kitchen. And then another point, maybe I was on the stairs when he came in. Doesn't look good. Um, Not sitting well with the investigators. So I really don't know if Lizzie murdered her father and stepmother. I can only say that she just continuously makes herself look bad. And every time she's questioned, she kind of digs herself a hole deeper and deeper. Uh, But based on Lizzie's accounts of everyone's timeline and location, nobody could have really come into the house. Bridget, Abby, and Lizzie... Somebody would have seen them based on their different locations in the house. Bridget was mostly outside. Abby was upstairs and Lizzie was downstairs. So kind of all the bases were covered. And so it would have been really hard for somebody to get inside. And it was locked from the inside. So at at the front door was. Now the back door was unlocked. And I think that's the only way anybody could have gotten in. But Abby was cleaning the windows. So I don't think anybody couldn't have. Have got, I'm sorry, not Abby, Bridget. So I don't think anybody could have gotten past Bridget without being seen. And there was likely about an hour and a half between Abby's death and Andrew's death. So it really begs the question here if it was an intruder, were they really just sitting in the house for an hour and a half waiting for Andrew to come home? Why wouldn't they kill Lizzie or Bridget? And if they wanted to take something, if this was like a robbery, they would easily have had time between. Abby's death and when Andrew got home. Plus, Andrew came home and took a nap on the couch, so he was not a threat and completely defenseless at the time. So they, with with the people that were still in the house, Lizzie and Bridget, you really wouldn't have been able to escape unseen. The door would not be locked from the inside. And all that could be deduced from the interviews of Bridget and Lizzie was that every time Bridget left Lizzie, On August 4th, somebody was killed. So Bridget was outside cleaning the windows. Lizzie was supposedly in her room. Abby died in the guest room right next to Lizzie's room. And Lizzie said she didn't hear anything. She said that she thought Abby had left the house. Bridget went upstairs to take a nap after starting, I mean, before starting dinner. When Andrew came home, because he wasn't feeling good, he came home early from work. And when Bridget went upstairs to take a nap, is that's when Andrew was murdered, leaving Lizzie as the only other known person in the house without an alibi and any witnesses to back up her story. So this is either you're guilty or really unfortunate 
circumstances. Yeah. One of the other pieces of Lizzie's story that was not coming together was that Lizzie said a messenger had come by and brought a note for Abby that there was a sick friend and Abby was going to go leave to visit this friend and pick up dinner while she was out. Only Lizzie saw this alleged note. The note was never found, not on Abby or anywhere else in the house. If she had left the house, the note would still be there or Abby would have it in her pocket and her hand or near her or something. It would be in the house anyway. If she had left to visit the friend and came back, the friend would probably step up and say, oh yeah, she was at my house right before she got home and got murdered. Yeah. So nothing ever comes up to back up this whole note story. And they put out a $5,000 reward for any information about this note, the messenger or the sick friend. Somebody would have been able to back this up and be like, yeah, I delivered a note. Yes, I'm the friend I asked her to come visit. Nothing ever came up from it. Just kind of weird. Clairvoyance even tried getting in on the story. So they wanted to charge anywhere from $8 to $2,000 in 1892 to try to speak to Andrew or Abby from beyond the grave. Why $8 to $2,000? I know. Who's a $2,000? I mean, you better freaking resurrect him. <laughs> right. Um, but one medium was claiming that she was seeing Andrew Borden himself, that he was coming to them giving giving this clairvoyant instructions. Um, no, nothing came of that. So let's talk again about Lizzie's possible motive. We knew that she was jealous and angry with her stepmother because her father was more generous to Abby's family and seemingly stingy with Emmy. I want to keep saying Emmy to say both their names, Emma and Lizzie. Their house was well below their means when the rest of the Bordens and other family members lived on the hill, the area where wealthy family lived, wealthy families lived, and where we know Lizzie really desired being at. So Andrew, while a shrewd businessman, but really didn't have many enemies. Shrewd businessman, and he was very good with his numbers, and he knew what the heck he was doing. He wasn't known as a mean man, just very stern, very honest, and didn't take any guff. So not a bad guy. And that's what a lot of people said about him. Nothing was stolen in the home, so it couldn't be considered a break-in or a robbery gone wrong. And there was at least an hour or more between Abby and Andrew's death. A robber would have had ample time to take what they wanted and get out before Andrew even got home. Not to mention Abby was axed in the back of her head, which would indicate that she walked that which would not indicate that she had walked in on a robbery or anything. And it was on the opposite side from the door. So it appeared so when you walk into the room there's a bed. She mm-hmm. was on the other side of the bed and lying face first having been axed in the back of her head on the ground. So nothing there indicates that she walked in on something or she walked in on somebody robbing and was spinning around, turning out the door and they got her in the back of the head. Yeah. She was like mid cleaning and the killer probably surprised her and gave her no time to escape or fight back. She may not have even like seen it coming. She was just alive then dead. Newspapers though were another issue. So Not unlike the media today, the newspaper had their biases, and while we have trial by media today, they had trial by newspaper back then. So still like a trial by media, except there wasn't as much media, as as many media outlets as there are today. For sure. So the newspaper was really the only source of information that the public was getting, unless you knew the family personally or ended up being in the courtroom to listen to everything firsthand. One newspaper was the Evening News. The editor was a close friend to Andrew Borden and stuck firmly in her innocence. So all the articles in the Evening News were about her being innocent. If you got the other newspaper, The Globe, it sided with the police, a lot of speculation, and it was pretty anti-Lizzie. And they were pushing the story, the narrative that the police were also that she killed for the inheritance. So you you saw two different sides, but both the news, newspapers had their, their biases. So they were getting a lot of half-truths and just a lot of opinions. Um, we don't know for a fact, well, one, we don't know for a fact if she even killed her parents. And if she did kill her parents, did she do it for inheritance? We don't know. Did she end up getting the inheritance? Yes. All right. It's hard to know what actually happened. Um, If you were one of just the public at the time reading the paper, you didn't know what evidence actually existed or who to believe because there could just be a bunch of hokum in the newspaper. Hokum? Hokum. So a little bit on the evidence. Um, The home did have 
some hatchets and some axes that were initially taken. Like I said, it wasn't until their second run through the barn that they found the broken hatchet that is today considered the murder weapon. What's kind of strange, it like I said, wasn't that it wasn't found the first time. Was it there? Did they miss it? Did somebody go place it there later? When the 1890s blood spatter analyst, their Dexter of the time, said that that hatchet was actually pretty clean. There was one hair found on it, and it was an animal hair. They thought, like, cow or something like that. thought they didn't have any animals. Well, they didn't identify the hair. They just said it was animal hair. The note that Abby supposedly received, according to Lizzie, was never found. No messenger, no sick friend came forward claiming that the note existed. So let's go into the preliminary hearings, between the preliminary hearings and the actual trial. One big story did come out in the newspaper was a conversation between Emma and Lizzie, supposedly somebody else in the jail overheard this conversation but i will say they never agreed that they said this to the reporter so was it a true story was it not they didn't they would not sign an affidavit saying whether they actually said this or not so we don't know if it's true okay um but the reporter swore on everything that it was true so this is lizzie um you gave me away emma didn't you emma no lizzie i only told mr jennings this is the attorney what i thought he ought to know for your defense Lizzie, that is false and I know it, but remember, I will never give one inch, never. So when people read this in the newspaper, by the next day, it went out to the entire country, not just the local papers. They looked at this as like an almost confession to murder. Uh Uh-huh, I would too. So I will say another weird thing that happened while Lizzie was awaiting trial, a young girl was viciously murdered and an axe was the murder weapon. And this is in the Fall River area. The biggest difference in the two cases between the Bordens and this girl was that she actually was robbed, but she's a young girl. And they had arrested a disgruntled employee of that family. But the case did get a lot of people's attention that it's possible there was a murderer on the loose. Another weird twist to that story. So they arrested and convicted that man. He was pardoned 20 years later and no one knows why. Interesting. So Again, people go back to, is there a murderer on the loose? Did that man commit a capital crime? And then something was found later that made him innocent? We don't know. Like, literally, the Borden family tried to find out. We don't know. That's fishy. So, in part of Lizzie's attorney's closing argument during some of the preliminary hearings, he said, Lizzie Borden did not commit this crime. It was the work of an insane man or a person whose heart is black as hell itself. (laughs) So the newspaper noticed Lizzie was crying as he said this. Her attorney also went on to say that the police never looked at anyone outside the home, which narrowed it down to only Bridget and Lizzie. He also told the jury that the courtroom, jury and the courtroom, that Bridget wasn't asked nearly as many specific questions as Lizzie was. So to kind of paraphrase what he said, Bridget wasn't asked how many dishes she washed or what order she laid them out in. Um, And Lizzie was on prescription medication for sleep and um, being looked as a suspect because she couldn't remember a lot of the small details of exactly where she were, where she were, where she was at very specific times during the times of the murder, which I feel that myself, I'd like to think that I would be able to remember a little bit more sharply if a murder was involved. But I always think that when I see people being questioned, I'm like, especially this, of course, she was questioned a lot of it on the same day. But when you're talking like weeks, months, years later, and they're like, Mm -hmm. where were you on August 4th, 1998? I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah. But I also think like when I'm cleaning, if she was cleaning in the house, like I'm cleaning off the counters and thinking, oh my gosh, you need to take out the trash. You need to do this, do that, do that. So you're kind of like all over the place. And then you're like, what, did I clean the counters today? Yeah. But like, so I could see why she said she was on the stairs or maybe she was upstairs. Cause to me, I'd be like, Okay, that one I think is weird because I usually know where I am like when Casey walks in the house. True. You know, did I see him when he walked in the house? Yes. Okay. There's only where so many did places I s- you could be. Right. So if Andrew Borden's walking through the front door, were you looking down at him from upstairs? Were you looking kind of straight at him from the stairs? Yeah. Or were you in the kitchen and you saw him from afar? Like that to me is weird, but... I'm not in Lizzie's mind. I don't know if she has some memory impairment or something else. Maybe it was so 
unimportant to her at the time. She just didn't retain that information. I don't know. So the courtroom cheered in agreement with his statement that she could not have been guilty. So most of them didn't think that Lizzie was guilty. There wasn't any incriminating evidence to suggest that she was, and the prosecution really struggled following the defense. Um, Nothing tied Lizzie to this crime except for her being in the home and her odd behavior following the murders. The defense used a motion to plead in her innocence while the prosecution tried to come at this from a logical angle. She was the only person that would make sense to commit the murder. She had the motive and she she was at the house at the time of the crime. So during the early hearings, it was a packed house. Women showed up with lunch baskets and their knitting materials. And this was just like going to a matinee. Uh, Reporters crowded around tables with papers and pencils ready to write down everything they could uh, at the trial. Remember, there's no recorders or anything, so you have to write down everything. That gives me a hand cramp thinking about it. Yeah, exactly. So one major conflict of interest in the trial, and again, these are just all interesting things to point out. Um, was Justice Dewey presided over the trial. This is the person that had the authority to decide what evidence was allowed to be let into the trial. And... Wait, was the person's name Justice Dewey? Yeah. Well, he was the justice. His last name was Dewey. Oh, okay. I was like, that's (laughs) kind of a cool name. Yeah. And you're like a judge. It's me, Justice Dewey. (laughs) I have arrived. So so he had the authority to decide what evidence was going to be at the trial and not. And he was appointed to the bench by none other than George Robinson, who was the former governor of Massachusetts and Lizzie Borden's head attorney. Ooh. So there's a little conflict of interest. Lizzie's head attorney had appointed the judge that they're using in this trial. So Something meaty. about that feels a little meaty. <laughs> That's the Rupert Joel McHale show. The soup. Mm-hmm. So meaty. I completely forgot about that. Okay. So I didn't know what the heck you were talking about. Yeah. She gave me a great look of, of disgust. Like I said, Lizzie gave him a blowy. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, on August 30th, president, pre- not president, professional. Oh my gosh, Professor Edward Wood from Harvard came to the stand. He was a chemist that looked at the contents of Abby and Andrew's stomach. He also examined a lot of the stuff at the house. So he examined the contents of their stomachs. He also examined the hatchet, the axes, the clothing taken from the crime scene. Um, There was a thought that Lizzie had attempted, again, because she's a woman, she would not have, if she did hatchet them, that would not have been her first choice. She absolutely would have tried to poison them first. Um, So they wanted to see if there was any poison found in their system. Because remember, Andrew and Abby were having stomach ailments the days leading up to their deaths. So after the examination, he said there was no poison found in their stomachs. Their stomach showed them to be in perfect health. They also examined the milk that was at the home. Also, no poison found. And he said, I would have found it if there was any. People were shocked. Again, if this is a murderous woman, she would have tried to poison them first. Oh, for sure. After Eli Benz's story, it was widely believed that she attempted to poison them and it was unsuccessful. So then maybe she went and got a hatchet when that just didn't work out. So next was the hatchet, another underwhelming round of questioning where there was no blood found on one of the hatchets that had some dried residue that they thought initially was blood. The only blood that was found outside of the actual bodies was a grain, was the size of a grain of rice on one of the insides of Lizzie's skirts. She said this was from flea bites, which they thought may be a euphemism for her menstruation. (laughs) <laughs> I don't what? know how you take the words flea bites and assume she she meant she's menstruating because um, those are different. I've been bitten by oh. fleas and I've also menstruated and they're nothing alike. And I would compare them in no way whatsoever, except for both being a nuisance. These fleas are quite terrible this time. Yeah, I, it just. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> She's like that. Uh, you're not even itchy with your menstruation. Yeah. So. so, and this blood could have very well been from her period. We really don't know. And it was located like at the inside of her skirt, um, but no other blood was found on Lizzie's clothing. Her shoes, her stockings were all inspected. No blood. So here we have 
no poison, no blood, and no human hair that's linking anyone to the crime. But the investigation, but the investigation into their stomachs did come up with one important piece of information. So Abby and Andrew ate breakfast together the morning of the murders, and Abby's digestion, of course, stopped when she died, while Andrew's would have continued until he died, leaving his food more digested than hers, which helps to time out that time difference between their murders. And Wood believes she was dead approximately 90 minutes before Andrew was killed. The stomach contents also supported Bridget and John Morse's stories of the happenings of what they of when they last saw the victims. So September 1st came time for Lizzie to go into the courtroom, hear what's going to happen to her up to the trial or if they're going to go to trial. Um, this is the day that would decide at least that part of her fate. All that was left were the closing arguments. They asked her to stand up. She did so shakily. And they said to her, the judgment of this course, court is that you probably are guilty of the offense charged against you. And it's therefore the order of the court that you be committed to Taunton Jail, where you will await your trial for a grand jury. So she goes to jail until the trial, which is going to be June 5th, 1893. So she had to wait about nine months in a nine and a half by seven and a half jail cell where Ooh. they shut the lights off at 7.30 p.m. You're not given a candle or anything for lights. And she really struggled with this because she wa- she would have liked, she struggles sleeping. That's, we know she's on sleeping medication. Yeah. She would, she usually read at night and she didn't have this option when they just turn off the lights at 7.30. Oh, sucks. And you have, what? almost 12 hours until you see light again i mean i would sleep like a baby i know you would (laughs) even in a jail cell yes laney's like oh there's time now i can take a nap (laughs) yes i got nothing to do and there is an all-male jury 12 men um none of them are from fall river they're in like neighboring areas all similar in their beliefs and biases so this isn't really even though a jury is supposed to be a trial of your peers it's not it's 12 men with all similar beliefs and biases and they did not believe that a woman could commit this crime so that's already tainting people's ideas of what could have happened here yeah yeah so a woman would have only poisoned she wasn't capable of committing a violent crime And they also had just invented the electric chair at the time. So the thought of a woman ending up hanged or electrocuted was a lot to take. And men don't, aren't just, they're just not going to think at the time that women deserve that or could handle it or whatever. Huh. And women designed to just, you know, make babies and feed babies. Yeah. And women weren't committing capital offenses. Which makes you wonder how many women did get away with murder back then. Right? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm just picturing like women whose husbands are having affairs while they're supposedly at work and, you know, not poisoning them, just doing something else, pushing them out a window. Yeah. It was an accident. So a lot of the same information was given at the trial. Uh, A lot of circumstantial evidence. Lizzie didn't like her stepmother, complained about her father. Again, all circumstantial. You can have a bad relationship with somebody, but not kill them. So the defense had really nothing that could point to her being the murderer, except for she's the most likely candidate. She was in the house at the time. The defense went in saying that Lizzie gave Andrew a ring. It was the only piece of jewelry that Andrew wore was a ring that Lizzie gave him as a symbol of a love of her love to her father. And they looked at that as she gave her father this jewelry. They clearly had a close relationship. It's the only piece of jewelry he ever wore. So why would she kill her father? She wouldn't. I'm saying they say she wouldn't. I don't yeah. know if she would. And the defense obviously, like defense does, sticks to convict her if you have no doubt she's the murderer. And that's the problem here. There's going to be doubt because there's not enough incriminating, there's no incriminating evidence against her. It's all circumstantial, not enough to convict her. So the jury deliberates and supposedly they lollygagged intentionally to look like they were really on the fence. They were not really having any issue with the verdict that they were going to give. Not only if she was guilty, she would likely, like we said, be hanged and women were not hung. The last woman that had been hanged in Massachusetts was in 1778. And in this situation, she had claimed to be pregnant. Over a dozen midwives 
inspected this woman and said, no, she's not pregnant. And so she got the death penalty. She was hanged. They did an autopsy. Turns out she was in fact pregnant, even though over a dozen midwives says she wasn't. And Massachusetts got a little gun shy on giving women the death penalty. And this is over 200 years. Oh, I'm sorry, not over. This is almost 200 years later. No, it's not. I'm in eight. It was over 100 years later. I'm sorry. My math is like <laughs> way. I'm like staring at this. I'm like, no, over 200 years from 500 today. 500 years. Sorry. So over 100 years later, they still were not wanting any kind of scandal like that. So Lizzie ends up getting acquitted. The courtroom cheers for the verdict. As before, people had believed in her innocence most of this time. So after the trial, she was released. Almost 2,000 people crowded on 2nd Street and a band was playing Auld Lang Syne. Reporters and people gawked at her all the time. She could not go anywhere unnoticed. A reporter from The Globe wrote a book about the murders, Within the same year of the trial, anyone who thought Lizzie was innocent really didn't think so after that book was published. Not only that, it's different when you're sitting in a courtroom fighting for someone's innocence, and then once they're free, you're starting to tell yourself, like, what if she did murder it? Like, murder him. Yeah. And do I want to be around this person? Like, I'm kind of worried. What if she murders me? And so I think part of it is that, as you think you know Lizzie, you stand by her innocence because you knew her. There's no way she could do this. But then once she's free, you're like, okay, like, that's great. You're free. But like, I don't know if I want to be around you anymore. Yeah. And that's what happened with her friends. It, it, it's really... It's sad, and it's really sad if she was innocent that she had to live the rest of her life this way. She's kind of just looked at as a person who got away with it, and Lizzie didn't end up leaving Fall River. She was she felt like if she left Fall River, it would make her look guilty, so she actually never left her hometown, which led to a very lonely life. Um, Emma and Lizzie stayed in the family home for a short time, but they did move to the hill where they wanted to be that whole time. The into hill a, that has eyes? No. Oh. Into a very large Victorian home. Like I said, that's where they always wanted to live. That's where the wealthy lived. That's how both Emma and Lizzie wanted to live, but Andrew didn't. They moved to number seven Friend Street and bought this mansion for $13,000. The Hills residents did not love their new neighbors. They felt like a murderer moved in next door. In 1899, Lizzie reported that kids were throwing gravel at her home. Um, People rang her doorbell at all hours, but Halloween especially, um, people played pranks and messed with her a lot. During her lifetime, they made up the rhyme about her and about Lizzie Borden. Sing it or Uh, say it. You don't have to sing it. Lizzie Borden gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Um, kids are so they such would sing it. Sometimes. I know. Kids can be the like, biggest assholes. I can't even. And so they were just singing that, like right outside of her house, jumping rope, whatever, hopping scotch. Uh, they would throw rotten eggs at her house. They tied her doorknobs and stuck pins in her doorbell so that the doorbell would ring nonstop. The members of the Central Congressional Church were. Um, Christian Endeavor Society, where Lizzie had taught Sunday school to Chinese immigrants, they completely supported her during the trial. At this point, they publicly shunned her. Oh, wow. And so she she really gets abandoned by everybody. Ultimately, she ended up living a pretty lonely life in the aftermath of it all. But Lizzie tried to reinvent herself as Lizbeth. 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 She wanted more than anything to be able to prove her innocence and... She never will be able to. On a positive note, she was known to be very generous with her money, unlike her father. She paid her staff well. She donated a lot of money. She was very, very philanthropic. She was a generous gift giver. She loved animals. She supposedly sent one of her staff members' kids to college. Um, Emma and Lizzie had a falling out in 1904, um, so 12 years after the murder. Yeah. Murders happen. Emma ended up moving out of their home in 1905, and they never spoke again. Oh, that's so sad. They died on the same year in 1927, only nine days apart from each other. Oh, wow. When Lizzie died, she left $30,000 to the Fall Rivers Animal Rescue League. We will never know if she's innocent or not. We know that after the trial, she went 
to be a decent human being. She didn't come off as greedy. Yeah. Uh, the Borden family is buried in Oak Grove Cemetery, and the Borden house is for sure considered haunted. So the Borden house is a bed and breakfast today. So you can book tours or stay in a room, um, sleep in the house, whatever. So supposedly Lizzie does not haunt that house. She actually um, haunts the Maplecroft house. That's what she named it. And I think I said Friends Street earlier. It's French French Street. That's where she bought the house in the hill. So the Borden house on 2nd Street is haunted by Abby and Andrew and supposedly two children that were murdered nearby. Scary. Some people that work there say they've never seen anything. They don't believe it's haunted. Um, People that stay there might not be used to staying in a very old house where things were added later, like air conditioning and stuff like that. So the way sound travels in the house just makes for some weird noises. And so some people may just not understand that, but it's definitely believed to be haunted. There's definitely people that have left during the night. The Maplecroft house, though, on number seven French Street, January 2021, it was listed for 890,000. It is a 4,000 square foot home in the historical district of Fall River. It has seven bedrooms, four bathrooms and six fireplaces. And um, a beautiful stained glass window. It is now the pictures of the listing. I don't know what it looks like right now, um, but the pictures of the listing, it is set for the time period. It's freaking gorgeous. Um, Very beautiful, unique house and 4,000 square feet. So it's pretty large, especially for just uh, Emma and Lizzie who were living there, lived there for 12 years together. And then Lizzie remained there by herself until she died. So that is the Borden house and Lizzie Borden. It's really fascinating. I don't know if I think she's innocent or guilty, just like everyone else. I mean, what do you think? Oh my gosh, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that is the most compelling and she is the most likely candidate, but it is what makes me think if she did do it, that she may have had a reason to do it other than money. Yeah, I don't know. That's just where my head goes because there's nothing about her personality that's been reported that she's greedy or selfish or violent or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes me think if she did commit the murders, it might be for something more than money, like abuse or yeah, something. I don't know. I, I, I don't know Lizzie very well, but from all the things that I've read about her, I'm just not picking up that she she would have done this for just money. Yeah. Um, so maybe she didn't do it. Now, if she didn't do it, that just begs a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. How did somebody get in the house? Unless it was Bridget. How did somebody get in the house? What was their motive? So I don't know. I really don't know. But if she did do it, a part of me really thinks that she would have had more of a reason than just the inheritance. Yeah, that makes sense. I could see Bridget doing it. Or what? Maybe, or, <laughs> what about Bridget? Made she's you guilty. I mean, no, I'm just kidding. I don't know. She's, she's an immigrant. Like the other person <laughs> that didn't seem to get a lot of heat, but she was there as well. So, but she had no motive. She did. She had nothing financially to gain from this or anything else. So it seemed like, why would you do it? Would be the question. Could have been like a Handmaid's Tale situation, and Andrew sexually abused her or assaulted her and the wife was all for it held her down i don't know that was a very specific (laughs) scenario that i don't think happened i I just have had handmaid's tale on my brain oh gosh i can't with that show i couldn't finish it it was too much for me it just it's just such a good show though yeah well i can't watch it it's weird and sitting there watching um the wife sit there while they're Doing the maid is it, yeah. just really weird. It's super uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable. So wild. And, um, okay, I never watched past the first season, but the wife of the main house is in Dexter. I know. She's Hannah. I know. That, like, bo- I was sitting there watching Dexter, and I was like, why do I know this chick? Where <laughs> is her face from? Literally the only thing I knew her from was The Handmaid's Tale. I've never, I don't think I've ever seen anything else she was in, but... She was in that show Chuck I really liked. Oh, okay. um, and Dexter. She's in something else too. She's in a movie I, mean, I recently saw, but 
Yeah, I didn't watch Chuck either, so I don't know. But yeah, so keep listening, you guys. Thank you for sticking with us. Uh, this is episode 16. We're slowly but surely getting there. <laughs> um, go check us out on Instagram at haunted.real.estate. And I should also be saying that my husband and I are realtors in the Houston area. So if you're in Houston, feel free to give us a shout. If you have any needs there, um, we also are at Jabora, G-E-B-O-R-A dot realty dot team. And send us an email. If you have any weird like housing stories, some like weird anything that's related to real estate, we'd love to hear it. We'd love to have a portion where we share some of y'all's like weird, interesting stories of a house you lived in. A house you looked at buying, a house you listed. I don't know. I want to yeah. know. Well, we actually got our first uh, semi-request via Instagram. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to share names, but we were asked to look into one of the graveyards in Houston. So, Thinking um, about a Patreon for that? Yeah, I would love to do that. Um, absolutely. If the requests are coming, we definitely want to genuinely take the time to look into it. Yep. So thank you. You know who you are, girl. um yeah okay so that's it um oh i didn't say where to send the stories to that would be good too um that is haunted re for haunted real estate haunted re at gmail.com gmail gmail (laughs) okay all right have a great day everyone thanks for listening bye